Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm very honored this week to be joined by Scott Becker, who is the founder of Becker's Healthcare and then also a partner at the law firm of McGuire Woods in Chicago, Illinois. So Scott, welcome to the DaVinci Hour. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on. No, Dr. Cooper, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me and excited to get to visit with you and, and learn more as well. So thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. So maybe give the listeners a little bit of background, you know, where you went to school um, and then kind of maybe a little bit of an overview of your legal work and, and some of the other things you're involved with. Certainly. Sure, sure. So I'm uh, business-wise, there's two main things I do. I'm the publisher, founder of Becker's Healthcare. I'm also a partner at McGuire Woods, a health law practice. We'll talk about how those things evolved in a little bit. You know, I, I went to Harvard Law School. And the thing about going to Harvard Law School, if somebody doesn't tell you that in the first 10 seconds, they probably didn't really go there. It's so obnoxious. Can't help yourself. Went to Harvard Law School. I, I was the, the claim to fame is I was a teaching assistant to Barack Obama was in one of my classes. And, and President Obama was a magnificently smarter person than myself. So he used to sort of say to the class, I think this is what Scott is trying to say. And, and I, I kid you not. And he did it in such a positive, nice, professional way. And I felt like on a Saturday Night Live skit, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I meant. You know, but he was just magnificently bright and, and gifted and could cut to the chase on things where I had more struggle with it. So the core of introduction partner McGuire Woods, founder, publisher, Becker's Healthcare. I'm a Harvard lawyer, went to University of Illinois as an undergraduate, uh, finance and accounting undergraduate, CPA and finance, and ended up sort of building my entire professional life in different ways in law or media in the healthcare sector, and then do just a variety of different things around it and have loved it. So, you know, a, a great pleasure. That's, that's, uh, that's awesome. That, that's an interesting story about President Obama. You know, I imagine going to Harvard, you, you rub shoulders with people that either at the time or, or that go on as in that case, go on to become, you know, leaders in our world is, is pretty fascinating. <laughs> so I guess maybe give us a little bit of an overview of your, your legal work with hospitals, how you got into doing that, what type of, you know, services do you provide for hospitals and kind of your areas of expertise in that regard? Sure. So I started as a lawyer, you know, out of law school, I was 25, of course, I had no idea what I wanted to do other than I really sort of wanted to be in generally in business law versus not. Spent the first three years at a mega law firm, and at the mega law firm, you just says it's like being a resident. You just to work a crazy amount of hours. People say to you, you know, do whatever you want in your free time, and you can do whatever you want entrepreneurially and stuff like that. And you realize, of course, I have no free time. You know, so I went through a period of time where you know being at the, being at the law firm, being at home, it was all just brutal. So it was a very challenging, you know, early career. And then about three, four years into it decided one way or another I had to build a specialty. Like you had to be a specialist in law if you wanted to have, you know, a decent life and some control of your life and stuff like that. So decided to pursue a specialty, looked at a variety of them, had done some healthcare transactional work, some healthcare business work. And it just seemed interesting. It seems like, you know, and people were, you know, there were people that said like, well, oh, you're going to limit yourself too much. But even then it was 20% of the economy. I figured out, figured out, you know, find a way to thrive within it. Joined a law firm that was a much smaller law firm 
that just really thrived and enjoyed it and, and just spent a ton of time at this mix of sort of healthcare and business. So it was sort of the example would be working with the health system here back in the day, helping them complete 70 different acquisitions of practices, big and small. It would be, you know, then, then moving forward, working with one of my places I grew a specialty in early was an outpatient surgery centers, special, you know, ambulatory surgery centers. So the core of the practice ended up being working with large hospitals and health systems, working with surgery centers and surgery center chains. And then over time, as the whole world evolved in healthcare, working with investors in healthcare, meaning private equity funds invest in healthcare, in different kinds of deals in healthcare. It wasn't sort of, it wasn't out of like, when people say to me, you know, somebody asked me this question recently in a law school class that I was a guest teacher at was, do you feel like you're morally fulfilled because you practice in healthcare law and, and the direct answer was no, not really. It just happened to be the business I was in. I mean, I love the people I work with. I work with a tremendous amount of mission-centered leaders. But do I feel like myself, I'm making a difference in healthcare? Not particularly. I don't feel like, oh my God, I'm doing this great work. I'm altruistic. I'm in healthcare. I feel more like I'm at the intersection of sort of media, business, law, and healthcare. And it's been fascinatingly interesting, but, but I don't feel like I'm doing some great service not like people like you are or hospital leaders are, or health system leaders are, or physician leaders are in actually providing care and overseeing care and supervising care and trying to make sure everybody gets care in this massive country that we've become and make sure there's enough people providing care. I don't, I don't feel like I play a part in that. We, we live in sort of the media world, the legal world, and it's great. It's great fun. But, but I, my hat's off to those like you who actually provide services to take care of patients. Yeah, no, thanks for giving us that overview of your, your legal work. Um, and, you know, certainly you know, the business and legal aspects of healthcare are all also important. You know, we can't do patient care without making sure we keep the lights on and keep everything kosher. So appreciate that. <laughs> and I wanted to see, I wanted to ask you what, what led you, you know, you're this busy, you know, lawyer, you know, you're, you know, working on all these different uh, a- aspects with uh, hospitals and healthcare systems. What led you to, you know, starting Becker's Healthcare and, and how did you get started doing that? Sure. So it, it started literally 30 years ago now, and I started, it, and it was really an advent to trying to build a practice, build a brand in healthcare. And it was really at one point sort of just, um, you know, an advanced hobby, marketing within healthcare, stuff like that. And at some point, which is true of all things that become successful, I started hiring people and building a team. And then when we started to hire people and build a team, we, we ended up building it into a much different thing, thanks to the leadership of our CEO, a bunch of other people. It just built, and then it became much more of a media company than a branding marketing thing. So when you talk to people in hospitals, health systems, many of them will have no idea that there's a Becker, that I was a lawyer, you know, before I was a media person. But it was really about, it was originally brand building, then it became a real company, so I hired great people. And the trick to anything, to any success in life, at least I think for 99.9% of us is hiring great people, building great teams and so forth. So ended up with great teams in the media business, great leadership there from Jessica Cole, a bunch of other people. Now we've got, I think, 100 plus employees at Becker's Healthcare that are in, you know, 30 or so that do writing every day, a bunch that do event planning, a bunch that do business development, uh, a bunch that do, you know, data and analytics. And so there's, there's a whole group of people, events management and so forth you know, planning the conferences and agendas, but it became a much, you know, larger, just a, a real enterprise. Uh, it's been a fascinating labor of love. And so we've ended up sort of straddling both the, the legal practice and Becker's Healthcare, but it was originally started for one reason. And then it really became a true media company covering healthcare. And we love it. We get a chance to visit with the most interesting people. And we love it. I mean, it's, it's really, 
you know, I wouldn't get to know people like yourself other than the fact that I've got this backwards healthcare. And it's been, it's been greatly fascinating and, and fabulous. That's amazing. And, and maybe just give us a, an overview of, you know, everything, you know, it's such a multifaceted business now, you know, you, obviously you guys do, you know, medical news and then you cover topics like, you know, the economics of healthcare, you have podcasts, um, other, you know, you obviously have these events that you talk about. So maybe give us a little bit of overview of what your uh, different offerings are and your kind of your mission now at this point. Yeah, no, certainly, certainly. So the core is there, there's really four cores and there's lots of sort of smaller areas. This goes back a long time. There's the biggest part of the business is hospitals and health systems and coverage for hospitals and health systems. It's the leaders of hospitals and health systems. The second largest is health IT and revenue cycle, but things health IT, digital health, revenue cycle. Uh, the third and fourth are this mix of sort of ambulatory surgery centers, which is our original, original vertical line, and then orthopedics and spine. And then we also have areas, lots of different areas around those, whether for CEOs and CFOs of hospitals and health systems, we've got some other lines entirely like cardio and dental and GI and so forth. But those are much smaller areas of the company. We've also got an increasingly a payer focus because a big audience for what's going on with payers and technologists holding the payers and everything else. And, and our goal is, simplistically, we, we talk about being a magnet for readers for listeners and for audience attendees, you know, for, for attendees of conferences. We, we want to be a magnet. We have to be so good in this very information overloaded world that, that people find it very valuable to, to listen to us, to see us, to all those things. So we view it as just uh, critical that we try and uh, be, be that, a magnet for all, all of those audiences. Great. Tell us maybe a little bit more about some of these events that you host. You know, I've heard great things about them. Unfortunately, I haven't yet had the opportunity to attend one of them, but I hope to in the future. Well, well hopefully you'll come free of charge. You'll come as a participant. You'll come speak. You'll come be involved. We're, we're very big on a number of things. We try and teach and entertain. So we try and make sure, you know, so a conference of ours, we've got this health IT and revenue cycle conference coming up. That's in October 4th, the 7th or 7th, the 10th. I think we're at 7th. But the point being, at the end of the day, there might be 100 or 200 educational sessions. And there's also lots of sessions that are built more around networking, entertainment and stuff like that. I think, for example, President Bush is speaking at that conference. I know, um, you know, Scotty Pippen speaking at the conference as well. Shaquille O'Neal speaking at the conference as well. Michelle Wee, the famous, uh, you know, golfer, women golfer, golf's like, her handicap's only completely a billion times better than my handicap. But so we, we try and make sure that both teach people lots of chances to learn, but also entertain that it's fun and interesting and it's got a vibe. And it goes back to what we talked about a moment ago, which we have to be a magnet for attendees. We've got to be like, it's got to be worth coming. And it can't be worth coming just because they're getting CME credit because they can do that any way they want or, or any kind of professional credit. It's got to be worth coming because like they learn, they come away inspired, they come away excited, they come away, you know, positive about their professional career, what they're doing, you know, and they get a chance to educate and meet with and visit with peers. So conferences, years ago, we started investing in, you know, keynote speakers. So it, it, it makes it just a, just a different vibe, more interesting as well. We've had this year, former President Clinton, former President Bush speak. We've had um, Magic Johnson, Peyton Manning. We've had just a whole ton of, of great, great leaders speak. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Nikki Haley, we try to be completely apolitical, so people on both sides of the agenda, and it's just great fun. It, it just keeps it uh, interesting. It at least gives people a highlight every day in addition to learning, a lot of learning and networking with their peers. And so we view it as great excitement. We've got three conferences this fall. We've got the Health IT and Digital Health. We've got our Surgery Center Conference, this 28th annual one, which is just crazy. And then we finally get our, our hospital CEO and CFO roundtable conference, which is a smaller conference and completely full, completely sold out and, and, a, and, a, and a total, you know, and interesting. I mean, hospitals and health system CEOs are all in the spot of like, one, 
daunting financial challenges, two, trying to figure out what to do, three, trying to help figure out how to make it work, you know, in, in a very challenging environment. So, so we try and give people lots of information on all those things the best we can. And it's a lot of shared information, data, and, and hopefully people come away entertained as well. That's awesome. No, and I mean, thank you for uh, providing these, these venues for, for people to network and meet each other and learn more. I'm curious, what, what's your general advice for physicians trying to build their network? You know, obviously with other physicians, but also with non-clinicians involved in healthcare as well, like yourself, the legal aspects or leadership or business, what, what, what would be kind of your advice as far as that goes? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, it's a great question. I, I think in terms of constantly, one of the spine surgeons that my spouse talks about all the time, talks constantly about what are you doing besides medicine? And, and, and what you're doing besides medicine is so important for so many reasons. I, I would say the, the most important is if you're a physician and you just do medicine for 30, 40 years, that's all you do the chance of you being burnt out and sick of what you do, I think you're just very high. And so, so more than anything else, you got to be doing something, not because you want to make more money in the side, not because you want to build a brand, not because you, for whatever reason you want to, those are all good reasons. For whatever reason you want to, you have to have hobbies and endeavors and engagements outside of practice. If you don't want to be completely burnt out in 30, 40 years, at least as my experience. And there's, there's, there's obviously counter examples to that. But by and large, I think you have to be doing something besides just practice if you want to make it work. You know, the people that I've worked over the course of years, there's people that are able to set some sort of boundaries and those that are not. And those that are not ultimately have to switch jobs periodically, have to switch things periodically, have to switch teams periodically, not because they're not just magnificent, but they have no ability to sort of say, no, this is all I'm doing right now. You know, for example, you were, as I understand it, on call all weekend, you've got today doing some of the other stuff not grinding away on Monday after being on call all weekend, because that's an exhausting way to live. And people could, could do it. You're much, much younger than I am. People could do it. They could grind through it for X amount of years, but sooner or later it keeps up, it catches up on you. So like, whether it's learning, engaging, what you're doing right now is you do podcasting, allows you to talk to very interesting people, not so interesting people, but a whole mix of things and allows you to keep learning yourself with yourself being the pivot point around that. So that's obviously a, a pleasure. People go to events. I'm a big fan of you go to events. But if you go to events, you got to engage. You can't just be there. You have to engage. I'm a big fan of like, you want to get better at something, you probably got to be humble enough to seek advice on how to do it. You know, it's something that men generally, particularly, aren't particularly good at. You know, so if you look at a thing like either a sport we're trying to get better at, an area we're trying to get better at, uh, you know, there's this old stereotype that men will, will spend so much time and effort and energy before they finally ask for help or directions. And it's there's a humility in being willing to say, I can't figure it out. I've got to sort of learn and I need to ask somebody, but it's, it's hard. You know, it's, it's hard to do that for most of us that are achievement oriented, you know, think of ourselves as alpha types and been successful, whatever we do, but then to actually seek help and be humble and say, I need help with this is, is a challenging thing. But I think constantly looking for that help and what you're trying to learn too. But I think it starts with this, this, this Dr. Alpesh Patel, I'll give him credit for it. He is a spine surgeon in Chicago. I think chairs the Northwestern department, but constantly asks, what else are you doing? What else are you thinking about? And it's not that you don't want to spend, I'm, I'm always a believer, you spend 80% of your core of what you do. So 80% for you might be being the greatest interventional radiologist in the country, great at what you do. And then 20% is what else am I doing to, to expand my network, to think, to learn, to grow, to constantly be growing. And I think that's a, a, a great way of looking at things. You know, what am I doing as a core, I'm spending X percent on, and then what am I doing to grow and learn and, and, and grow? And I think it's just so important. And everybody's got to figure out different ways to do that. 
but I, but I think it's so important. Motive, most of us need help in doing it. We can't do it ourselves. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a lot of excellent points you just hit on there. I mean, one, just, you know, having a little bit of humility. I mean, a lot of positions have, you know, a little bit of an ego, as I'm sure you've noticed over doing this long enough. And so I think knowing, knowing your limitations, knowing what you do know, which obviously for clinicians is clinical practice, but also, you know, being, a, being willing and able to ask for help and ask people like yourself who are experts in other areas. And I think that those are excellent points. And then finding an outlet. I mean, like you said, this podcasting, it's, it's a great outlet. People ask me how I do it or how I have the energy for it. And, you know, I, I love doing it. I wouldn't do it otherwise if I didn't. And it's like you said, it's a great balance to, you know, some people, you know, they find different ways to balance their work. But this for me is just, you know, I love talking with people like you and meeting new people and learning every one of these episodes I do, I learn something new and um, it's just, it's just fun. I, I enjoy doing it. Well, we think it's a great thing. I guess kind of going off that, how do you balance doing Becker's healthcare and being an attorney? I guess, how do those, how do those balance each other or how do those benefit each other? The number one core, I would say around all things is, is it's all about building teams and then figuring out your strategy. But if you build teams, they go hand in hand, but you can't do anything significant without building teams. In the law practice, and this goes back a long time ago, I was intent on building a specialty, building a practice, and, and to build a practice and build a specialty and to take great care of clients, because that, that's what it's all about. At the end of the day, you, you, you could bring in clients into a law firm, but unless they're taken care of magnificently well, they don't stay with you. It's much like you could work with a patient on in interventional radiology. Once you do a great job, you haven't really done what you're supposed to do. So you got to do great at what you do. So, But you can't do that without, without teams and people. So, so the core, the overlapping trend in both areas, aside from them both overlapping in healthcare, the original legal practice and, and still legal practice, and then the Becker's healthcare, is the, the overriding thread is you can't do anything without great teams. It's, it's all about sort of recruiting, retaining, keeping, growing great teams, and then sort of figuring out what you're going to do and what you're going to do and how you do it. There's some guardrails, but within those guardrails, rails, there's some pivoting and changing over time. I mean, if, if you, you know, I get Becker's Healthcare, one of our important lines is, you know, is, for example, podcasts. We do hundreds of podcasts a year. It's one of the highest ranked ones on the Business News Podcast, overall, overall podcast. And if you would have told me that, that wasn't a thing three, four years ago. You know, so you sort of have to constantly sort of pivot and stay close to your audience and where they're at and what they're listening to, what they're doing. You know, I'm in my mid to late 50s. If you would have told me, 10 years ago, I'd be podcasting. I would have said, that was crazy. I don't even know what that is. You know, and so you're, you're constantly sort of within the guardrails of trying to take care of your audience, trying to take care of what business you're in, take care of your customers. You're pivoting and growing and changing. And so, I mean, the, 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 the great concept is we had to be great, absolutely great as a law firm what we did, had to be absolutely great in a media company is what we did. And the only way to do that is to have clarity about what you want to do. But more importantly, is great, great is build, retain, recruit very talented people and great people and, and keep that sort of those teams going. And that's the hard work of business. Everything else is easy. I mean, it's not, it's, 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 it's hard in some businesses to get a client or a customer or an advertiser or an audience member. Much harder is keeping that client, that audience member, that advertiser. You know, if we hit, if we had our editorial wrong a few days in a row, our reader stops reading our electronic daily newsletter. It doesn't take very long because before they say, that's not hitting me. That's not reaching me. That's not interesting to me. People make that decision when they look at the, the ray line, the, the sort of subject line, in literally a nanosecond. Is that interesting to me or is that not? And then they decide they're going to be a regular subscriber or not. And, and it's the same thing with everything you do. 
it's got to be done great. As you take care of patients, you take care of the referral source, you take care of the people you work with, they got to know that Dr. Cooper cares, that he's on it, that he cares. And in, in, in our business, you just can't do that alone. You got to build great teams to do it. It's just too exhausting if you want to try and do it yourself. You just can't be sort of everything. And so you have to build great teams. And you have to be clear, this is what we're trying to be great at. So those are the two big things that we think of. Interesting. You know, I'm curious. I, I know you, you've had the opportunity to meet and talk with a number of you know leaders in healthcare, you know, hospital system CEOs, you know, hospital healthcare executives. I guess, are there any common traits you see among them, you know, that, that you think make them successful or good leaders in, in the, particularly the healthcare space? You know, I think there, there's ultimately, there, there's no substitute for them being very engaged in what they do. There's no substitute for taking a lot of attention, paying a lot of attention to it, being very engaged. And, and then sort of the, the, the combination of that is, hiring great people, building great teams. I had a chance to talk last week uh, to the CEO, for example, of the Banner Health System in, in Arizona. And Banner Health System, Peter Fine, they've grown over the last decade to being a regionally dominant, great, great system. Um, and it's amazing sort of the, the constant work on strategy and people, strategy and people. And, and most of these leaders, most leaders are successful over a long period of time they may be fine on PR. They may be okay on PR. They may not be good on PR, but they're very good at dealing with people and building teams. And they're very good about clarifying and developing. Here's what we're trying to do. Here, here's what our mission is. I mean, they were there, worked through literally a 20-year strategic plan since he got there, which is an amazing thing to look at. Not what are we going to be doing this year, but how's this going to look in five years? You know, how, how are we going to do that? So I constantly try to think about what is this going to look like, not just today, but five years, 10 years from now. And then who are the people that we need to make that happen? You know, how can we do that? What's, what's going to make that happen? And, and so it's, um, you know, in, in so much of life, I am so much of an incrementalist that when I think sometimes about people that, that can do that, think about what's going to look like in five years from now, what's this going to look like in 10 years from now? That's very hard for me, but, but, but to be able to do that and to think about who, who are the people that are going to make that happen? What's the team look like? I'm, I'm, I'm amazed in the law firm. So many of the people that came up with me, that worked with me, you know, 20 years ago, I'm now leading the firm. And that's a great point of pride that the people that I worked with as junior people are now the leaders of the firm. You know, those are the who that made it all work and have built magnificent practices. So, so can you sort of build those teams? Can you build that strategic vision, that clarity of what you're trying to do? And then you got to be able to work well with people. I mean, just there's no way around it. In the old days, I think even in the old days, it was probably overstated the idea of command and control, you know, leadership. So at the end of the day, even then, people expect to be able to, you know, to deal. We have this great concept that we have this, we want this intersection of people thriving and doing something consistent with, with, with what the firm needs to do to thrive. You know, but, but we want the people thriving too. So if you have a partner in interventional radiology practice, you want them doing what the practice needs, but you also want them thriving themselves. And it goes back to what else are you doing? Like, I don't want somebody just being a, a grinding their heck through life. I want them, you know, they might not love what they do every day, but what I, want them, I want them liking it enough. And I want them having enough freedom, enough time to be fresh, to have time to be able to deal with stuff. It's, I'll talk about one other subject, Dr. Cooper, if, you, if, you'll, if you'll indulge me. Of course. People talk about burnout amongst nurses and healthcare workforce and all that stuff and everything else. And they're, of course, right on. But there's no way to solve that without enough capacity, without enough people. For example, when people talk about like, well, we'll get them a massage, we'll give them a 12-minute break, 
uh, will read to them a, a philosopher's book. None of that works. Those are band-aids. You need enough capacity to be able to freedom themselves to fry, thrive and have time off. You can't solve this without more doctors, more nurses, more techs, or somehow another great technology that replaces them. But I don't see that happening. So it's still a very caring profession. When I take my mom and dad and we want people to help us, not just machines. We want people to be able to like help us figure out, help us breathe, help us figure out what's going on. But you can't solve it through all these cute little Band-Aid things. You just can't do it. You've got to actually figure out how do we improve nurse education? How do we make it quicker? How do we improve you know, physician education? Physician education is great. We turn up magnificent doctors. How do we do it in seven years, not 10 years? You know, Because if somebody's going to practice from 30 to 60, how do we get them practicing from 28 to 64? How do we make this a better livelihood, a better, easier way to get to school? I mean, it, medical school is generally medical education was designed pre the internet age. You know, it's not that it's not fantastic. We turn out great doctors. Like somebody said to me, well, you can't make it shorter. There's so much to know. That can't be the answer. The fact that there's so much to know, but you have to make it shorter because you got people, got people have to find out how to get that information. They're going to see a lot, but they also got to figure out how to access and find that information. And so you become sort of a multidisciplinarian, but it's, it's a fascinating thing. No, I think that's a lot of great points you hit on there. I mean, both, you know, the building great teams for, for uh, leading organizations. I think that's, that's a common trait we hear. And it's, uh, it's interesting to hear you say that as well. And then I think as far as the medical education front goes, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a lot of shift recently trying to make medical education more efficient, more innovative. You know, I mean, as you know, the, the model for medical education is kind of antiquated. It's, you know, we've kind of been using the same format for a hundred years now that William Osler developed at, at Johns Hopkins, um, kind of the two in the class, two years in the classroom, two years in the hospital. And I think, you know, there's a lot of schools doing some more innovative things. You know, part of what else I've done is some video courses for medical students to kind of make education more, you know, accessible and easier and things like that on the, on our website. And, you know, after talking with some, you know, deans and professors at other schools that, you know, I find that this is kind of the way they're trying to move and integrate those more into, into the classroom. And, so I think that's that's an excellent point you make, you know, kind of making education more streamlined, more efficient, uh, definitely. I think another question kind of segueing a little bit is, uh, you know, you've talked how you've done a lot of work with ambulatory surgery centers, and especially in my field of IR, but I think in a lot of other, you know, surgical or procedure-based fields, people are trying to move things more outpatient, just, you know, you would know better than me, but, you know, like it seems like less overhead costs, potentially, you know, it's, you know, patients like it better than, you know, having to get shuffled through a big, large hospital system for the day. I'm curious from your standpoint, is that something you see more of expansion of in the future? And then is that something that more can be done in like a rural or kind of less populated area? Or is that, or is it hard to do that in a, I guess, in a metropolitan area where there's already so many players in the game? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So there's about 6,000 Medicare certified surgery centers in the country, you know, and, and the big specialties for surgery centers, orthopedics, ophthalmology, gastroenterology, and pain management. Those are the four biggest specialties for surgery centers. And of course, there's lots of general surgery. There's, there's lots of ENT. There's lots of other specialties as well. But the, but the big four, orthopedics, pain management, gastroenterology, and ophthalmology. And, and, and of course, there's not nearly the amount of Greenfields brand new surgery centers being built as there were you know, 10, 15 years ago. Now, every orthopedic group, every gastroenterology group, you know, every you know, surgery group, ophthalmology group largely has a surgery center of some sort, you know, largely, not everybody, but largely. And then there's also obviously a ton of physicians that are now employed in their options for what they can own, not own are different as well. So then you look at areas like cardiology, interventional radiology, there's been more and more looking at how can we develop surgery center options for those 
but there's been a lot of pushback by CMS on what's allowed to move off the hospital list to surgery centers. For rural areas, it's challenging. Rural areas, same problem with everything. You need enough critical mass, and critical mass really means enough physicians to build a center. You know, it's, it's almost like you wouldn't build a shopping center without an anchor tenant. You won't build a surgery center without knowing you have the cases to make it go. And so it's not like if you build it, they will come. That's a prescription for bankruptcy. What, what really happens is you need enough surgeons up front that are part of that surgery center, invest in that surgery center, or a hospital that's going to really support that surgery center to build a surgery center. So it's, it's an answer. It's not an answer for the most complex surgeries generally. You know, still, if you're in a rural area, unless you have enough physicians, a great healthcare community, a great healthcare system there, you're, you're still going you know, to, to the more metropolitan area to get healthcare services. You know, you're still traveling more and more. Um, there's certain things you have to have locally, stroke care, a number of other things that don't have locally, you know, people's outcomes are just so much worse. But for a lot of surgeries, people are still going to have to travel because there's just not enough surgeons in those areas to make the surgery centers go. Yeah, that, no, that's interesting. I mean, you, you know, it's like you said with the shopping center analogy, like you need the customers there and, and obviously in the tenants as well. I'm curious, you know, do you see this, one, I guess, do you see more physicians trying to kind of branch out on their own and or group together and, and start these? Or is it more kind of at the health system level where they're kind of seeing opportunities to build these and, and that's where they kind of focus? Their yeah. Efforts? So so the first wave, and this goes back 20, 30 years ago, that, I mean, the first surgery centers were approved a very, very long time ago. Now, the, the, the first waves were in, you know, ophthalmology, gastroenterology, then orthopedics, and then sort of pain management. We've also got a wave, of course, going on in spine surgery as well. But what happens with GI ophthalmology have been so built out in so many places. There's not a lot of new GI and ophthalmology centers being built, though the, the reality is everybody at some age needs cataract surgery. A lot of it's going to be done in surgery centers. Everybody's colonoscopies it's going to be done in surgery centers too or endoscopy centers. But, but most of the gastroenterologists and ophthalmologists already have some interest or some involvement in the surgery center. So most of the physician-driven, physician-alone surgery centers, there'll still be some built, of course, but a lot of that's already been built. So orthopedic group, the same thing. Everybody knows orthopedics, fantastic for surgery centers. You know, everybody needs orthopedics at a certain age. The procedures pay fairly well, uh, you know, and, and people can somewhat self-refer to the orthopod. Not everything goes through a gatekeeper. So orthopedics, you know, surgeons have their own practice busy and doing well and in so forth. So those are all going fine, but there's not a lot of new building going on. It's so much built. The newer building the last few years is either hospitals and health systems building, you know, to expand their ambulatory footprint to try and progress out of the hospital into the footprint or be able to leave room in the hospital for more important stuff or more bigger cases. Uh, and then it's private equity driven, you know, sort of healthcare investor driven that are buying up practice, buying up other things and trying to build surgery centers around that. And typically doing it with physicians and physician practices. That's interesting. You know, as you as you may be aware, you know, in the IR community, there's a big push lately to kind of build outpatient-based labs. And because you know, a lot of our procedures can be done on an outpatient basis. And you know, some of the, you know, I know of some physicians that are, you know, they either they're tired of working for a large group or a large hospital system and they want to kind of take at least even just take a little bit more control of their practice and and they feel like they you know, it's better for their patients. I guess, do you, do you have any thoughts or advice on like, when would be a good time to do that? Is that something that's even realistic in this market? You know, is there certain areas you yeah. would it'd be easier to so, build one of those? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard for me to, I don't know that much about the office-based labs for interventional radiologists. I just don't know that much about it. I know at one point, interventional radiologists and urologists 
we're building radiation therapy centers and, and working on linear accelerators and stuff like that. The office-based labs and in, in the sort of outpatient interventional radiology, I just don't know where the codes are from a surgery center perspective. You know, with, with the cardiology codes, so much of it was moving to surgery centers. And then the CMS, the government kept it so that you couldn't bill a facility fee through a surgery center. So you had to keep on billing it through your practice. I assume, I think the interventional radiology might be similar to that. I, I don't know. So what happens is people are build, billing advanced enhanced professional services fees and then paying the surgery center almost a rental amount for use of the surgery center where they're doing it or, or what have you versus doing it in the hospital where the hospital gets both a facility fee and the interventional radiologist or cardiologist gets their professional fee. So you've got sort of these challenges from a regulatory and billing perspective that make it very hard. But I just don't know enough about it. What I do know is if you were building something, same thing we talked about with the anchor tenants, you don't build it unless you know you have enough capacity to make it economically work. And you sort of have to talk to your customers up front, whether it's the big Blue Cross plants, the big Cigna, the big United plants, whatever it is in your market, I know whoever it is, CBS, I know whoever it is. But to know, will they allow you in contract to do it? Unless your business is so heavily Medicare, like ophthalmology is that you know you're going to have your Medicare patients that can do cataracts there. That's interesting. I think, you know, I've interviewed some people that are either, you know, program directors or chairmen at these um, like private type groups, if you're familiar with that term, yeah. you know, with these private practices that try, to, that try to be, you know, also academic in a way. I guess, do you, do you see that as kind of a viable model going forward where, you know, as physicians, maybe they want to take a little bit more control of their practice, but still be a part of a big healthcare system or, or a big academic center and, and uh, yeah. you know, include, keep doing academic things in addition to being busy clinically. Yeah. You, you see some great examples of it at some of the great academic medical centers in the country at Rush in Chicago. You've got the Midwest Orthopedics Group, which is a, at Rush, which is, you know, they, they are very, very involved academically with Rush, but they're also very independent. They've got this, this synergy with the universe, with the medical center to go with the fact that they're also driven to have a private practice too. University of Pennsylvania, the CEO there, Kevin Mahoney, is a brilliant, brilliant person. It's constantly trying to create options for people to be affiliated with UPenn, Penn Health, Penn Medicine. It's called Penn Medicine, and also have people have some freedom and independence. You know, there's you know there's there's more systems that are trying to make that work. Of course, as you know, the world of medicine has moved more and more towards physicians being employed physicians. You know, and and that no no great surprise there. Just more and more of that. But there are certainly lots of great groups where there's there a mix of private practice and heavily involved with the academic institution. You know, and whether that lasts forever, I don't know. The, the people at Rush, for example, you know, you got to be a highly motivated physician to really want to pursue both fully. I mean, it takes people that are really, you know, I don't know, they used to call them in baseball, five tool player, you know, someone could, you know, run, hit, field, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and, and, and catch, et cetera, and, and do all those things. Whereas in, um, in hit for power, in, in academic physicians that are also going to be in private practice, they got to be great with patients. They got to be great with research. They got to be great managing residents. I mean, they got to be great at a lot of things. It's uh, it's not undoable. It's just a matter of, you know, you get more and more people come out. It's only 20,000 physicians graduate a year. A lot of them want a job in a profession, a job, but they don't want, they don't want to run a private practice. I mean, they just, you know, some do, some don't, but a lot don't. A lot want to sort of be affiliated, have a job, and it's a part of their life. It's not their entire life. Positive of that is maybe there's less burnout if people do that too. Who knows? You know, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. There's no, a whole mix of physicians coming out and what they want. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I, I think kind of going off that, I'm curious as we wrap up here, what, what's your advice to physicians who want to maybe develop their business acumen a little bit, you know, learn, even just learn a little bit more about 
the legal aspects, the financial aspects, because I mean, as you know, we, we don't, we get barely any training at all with that in, in medical school or residency. And, you know, I think even, or even just knowing how to yeah. find the right people to run those aspects for you, you know, in a sense. But, but this is a great question. It's a great question. And it really starts with, you know, I was on a podcast earlier today with somebody whose whole theory in life is on advanced learning, continued learning. And, and, and I'll take one of the comments that she made. It really starts with deciding, you know, that you want to learn besides being a great physician, you want to learn about the business aspects of what you do, you know, and, and it's a matter of, you know, how deep we do, and you just hit it exactly right. How deep will you want to dig into that versus you want to hire people to do that? And, and, and sort of the reality is there's got to be some combination of both because, you don't have to be an MBA, though I've seen plenty of physicians have gone back and got a master's of business or master's in health. And that's taking it to the nth degree. And there's a lot of places in between, but it starts with, I want to learn something and learning something every day about business, whether in a formal or informal way. And then it goes to, even if you're just going to hire people to really run the business, run the office, do all those kinds of things, and, and largely a good idea and fine, you need to know enough to be able to know whether you're being shot straight with whether people are dealing with you straight, whether it sounds right to you. And, and, the, and the thing about like, there's an old adage that, you know, you know, oh, my, my spouse is a physician, but he's, you know, he's not so great in business. He's a physician. And I think it's a very false, false adage. The reality is many physicians make magnificent business people. It's just making that decision. It's not going to happen by osmosis unless you, you make it an effort to do it. You have to decide. I want to be great as a physician, and I want to know enough about business. I want to learn about business. It's not going to just sort of happen. You've got to actually make the effort to be to be great at both, and then it's quite doable. And it's it's really making that decision. You know, it's like I want to be a great golfer. There's no way it's happening without me taking a ton of lessons from people and really working at it. Like I I I can't get better without it. And it's so true in so many aspects of life. You know, and, and I I am awful, but I'll be less awful if I actually seek help and try and get help on it and figure out what I have to do. But it, but it, it, but it's true about this. So many physicians are great in business. You just have to make that choice. I'm going to be great as a physician and I'm going to be great in business. You know, we were dealing last week with the interventional radiologist, Dr. Mehta, and, and Nisha has built this magnificent, magnificent uh, community called Physician Side Gigs about physicians that are both practicing, but doing interesting things on the side as well, business on the side. And it's just, but it's a decision that you, you really want to pursue learning about it as well. You know, it's not going to happen. It's, it's mostly not going to happen organically. I mean, obviously in some practices, you from an early age can be so involved in the business management of the practice that you will learn a lot about it, but it's, it's helpful to constantly look at how do you supplement that with some formal education and mentoring and coaching too. I think that's an excellent point. It kind of goes back to also what we were talking about a little earlier where, you know, being open to learning, you know, always being, you know, I think the lifelong learning of medicine, it, it expands out of just clinical practice or clinical medicine. I think it's also, you know, being open to learning these things and wanting, you know, not just for uh, your own personal growth, but also to help better take care of patients. I mean, a better run practice is, you know, going to take care of better care of patients most likely. And so I think that's- well, No, it really is. You're going to have better help. You're going to have better staff. You're going to have better people around. You're almost certainly going to do better at it. Most physicians are extremely bright, extremely disciplined. You don't get to medical school. You don't get medical school and residency without being pretty disciplined, pretty bright. And so the concept of it's a matter, but, but they have to actually apply their efforts to learning that as well. I mean, just it's, but, it, but they're very, it, there's no blockage in doing so. It's, it's, they're, you know, very capable. They're great learners and, and really smart. So it's easy. It's very easy to do, but you have to choose to do it. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So my, my final question I ask every guest this is what what do you do to balance your life outside of all your your work and endeavors? You know, where do you find that that balance if if there is one? <laughs> sure. So so mine is awful. It's all these sort of like um, you know, fitness type things, golf type stuff, tennis type stuff, any kind of sport type stuff, those kinds of things. Obviously, we spend a ton of time with the kids and stuff like that, as long as they'll let us spend a lot of time with them. You know, tennis, I grew up playing. I'm fairly good at it. Golf, I didn't grow up playing. It starts in my late 40s. I'm awful at it. Not as awful as I was, but still awful. It drives me crazy when some of my buddies beat me. It drives me absolutely nuts. And then a lot of fitness stuff, just trying to stay mentally and physically healthy as we get older. You know, this, uh, you know, they say is when you're younger, they say health is everything. And when you're younger, you don't really, you know, you don't really think that you think, oh, no, I got to make a living. I got to build a, a practice. I got to do a business. I can do whatever I'm doing. But as you get older, suddenly you realize, and I think this generation has a better clarity focus on it, that physical and mental health is everything, you know, so you're, you're, so a lot of focus on those things. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm middling at it. It's a constant effort to try and stay reasonably shaped, reasonably healthy, reasonably all those things. I'm not great at it, but we're, we're we enjoy it tremendously and constantly working hard at it. That's awesome. You know, it's fun. I grew up playing tennis and golf too. Those are, those are two big passions of mine. I, you know, I try to, you know, play in tennis leagues and things like that when I can. And, and I, I, as I was telling you before we were start recording i come to chicago and one of the things i do up in chicago often is play cog hill i don't know if you've ever played over there um where sure. they used to play the bmw championship um but that's an amazing course always always fun to play out there <laughs> well it was, i've not played there because i am so bad they won't let me play there but someday i aspire <laughs> to do so no i didn't grow up playing golf i grew up I, later in life playing golf my brother in was in atlanta plays tennis in those leagues and stuff like that so Maybe you'll run into him and tell him to come see his, his in-laws at some point. Dude, it would be good if you get a chance. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but it would be okay if you told him it'd be okay. The, um, you know, it'd be nice. The, uh, but no, he's, uh, he's, he's good. But it's, uh, yeah, no, we love it. But it's, it's, oh my goodness, it's a humbling game, you know, it really is. But, but great fun, great fun. And we're, we're working at it. We're not, you know, it's when I was a kid, I would say every Sunday, oh, I'm not going to drink again for a while. I'm done drinking. You know, now it's every Sunday. Well, I'm done with that driver. I'm not going to do that driver again for a long time. And then, then sooner or later, by Thursday, I'm like, ah, oh, I think it's a weapon. I'm going to be good with the driver this weekend, but it's a disaster. So we'll see how it goes. But I'm giving up my driver this week. <laughs> Sometimes you got to do that, you know. It's, 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 I've been playing the game for over 25 years, and it's it's a humbling game. There's still there's times I go out there, and you'll look at me and. Like, man, this guy's really been playing that long. So it's, we all have our, our days it's, out uh, there. <laughs> it's awful. It's really awful. It really is awful. It's very addictive. I yeah. never thought I was such an ADD type person, such a hyperactive person. My nature, I drink so much coffee, so active. I never thought I'd become addicted to it and very addicted to it. I see why it's an addictive game, but it's just, as a, it's very humbling. It's like this concept of like, you know, it teaches you like to seek help and, and it, it's humbling because I know I have to seek help to get better. So, so I'm using that mantra in all aspects of life is not being afraid as is a egotistical male to seek help because we all need it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. I, the day before I left for medical school, I shot a 72 and I've never come close. I, I mean, I've shot a couple of times. Yeah. I've shot in the seventies, you know, here and there, but uh, no, especially if I went out right now, I definitely would not shoot that. <laughs> the, 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 the good news, the good news, Dr. Cooper is if we went out to play, I would be getting a lot of strokes. So we would come out with that. Uh, we'd come out, figure out the wager is because I'd be getting a lot of strokes. And so I'm hoping I'd be able to take money just based on strokes. So whenever you want to come play, I'll, I'll take my handicap strokes and we'll, we'll see if we can get you out there. I'm going to base your handicap as a scratch because you hit a zero. So you get, you get zero. <laughs> then I'm getting a lot of strokes and we'll play. I think that'd be a yeah. lot of fun. You know, <laughs> you're, you're not being hustled, but I'm all in. 
<laughs> that's awesome anyways well scott thank you so much i really enjoyed this conversation and uh you know i think it, i learned a lot and I'm, I'm sure the listeners will learn a lot as well great fun to visit with you sir thank you doctor thank you for listening to this episode of the da vinci hour podcast presented by da vinci academy please be sure to subscribe to our youtube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend lastly you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.